Amen. Thank you, Brian, for the reading of God's Word. It is powerful and effective, and it can pierce even between soul and our, and our hearts. And so as we come to God's Word this morning, continuing in our series in Mark, we come to chapter 3, which is a really interesting passage about family and about who is true family. And so as we begin this morning, um, I'm going to bring up a little bit of what I think is a controversial article that I read in The Atlantic, and it came out in March of this year, uh, and it's entitled, it's by David Brooks, uh, who's a New York Times writer, and the article is entitled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. What he means by the nuclear family is a mother and a father and just the children. That's the nuclear family. And he spends a long article talking about how the emphasis in America particularly on emphasizing the nuclear family was actually an experiment that has proven to be a mistake. And he, can, he goes through great lengths to explain how, uh, how the, the emphasis on just a small group of people together, excluding grandparents and cousins and extended family, and people moving across the country and moving away from childhood homes, how that's actually, we've lost something really dear about what family actually is. And maybe you can find the article another time and take 30 minutes to read the whole thing. But I'm just going to summarize a little bit what it says at the very end, what his conclusions are. So let me just read this at the very end. He says, for the privileged, it sort of works, the nuclear family, for privileged, affluent people. This arrangement enables the affluent to dedicate more hours to work and to email, unencumbered by family commitments. They can afford to hire people who would do the work that extended family used to do. But a lingering sadness lurks, an awareness that life is emotionally vacant when family and close friends aren't physically present, when neighbors aren't geographically or metaphorically close enough for you to lean on them or for them to lean on you. Today's crisis of connection flows from the impoverishment of family life. And he says, I often ask uh, African friends who have immigrated to America what most struck them when they arrived. And their answer is always a variation on the theme, loneliness. Elsewhere in the article, he estimates 35% of people over the age of 45 are chronically lonely. And this, keep in mind, this is March 2020, just before we all had to go into isolation. So I imagine this is probably even more so now. But he says, it's the empty suburban street in the middle of the day, maybe with a lone mother pushing a baby carriage on a sidewalk, but no one else around. That's what people who immigrate from other countries, particularly Africa, to here, that's what they notice. They just notice how lonely and isolated people are. And so he concludes, he says, uh, when we talk about discussing the problems confronting our country, we often don't talk about the family enough. Uh, He says, he he encourages us to to bring back the idea of the extended family, to bring in closer connection with one another, uh, and to break the chains of this highly individualistic community of life that we have built in this country over the last 75 years, he probably calls it. And so what it brings up for us, I think, as we encounter a passage like what Brian just read from Mark 3, where Jesus looks at his mother and brothers and says, this is my family. And he's pointing to people sitting around a table with him. 
He says the family are the people who do the will of God. What this passage brings up, what this article brings up, is this idea of insider-outsider. And this is a theme that you, that you learn in Mark. I was talking to a seminary student this week who, he took a class on the book of Mark, and I said, oh, I'm preaching through Mark. Can you tell me what's something you learned when you, learned, uh, when you were learning the, the gospel of Mark in a class? And he said, oh, insider-outsider. What you begin to see happening in the, in the book is themes of who's on the inside of Jesus' life and who's on the outside. And if you look through the first three chapters of Mark so far, who's on the inside? The disciples. The disciples are on the inside. Who's on the outside? Pharisees, scribes, right? There's a clear insider-outsider movement. But beginning here, things get, begin to get a little complicated with who's inside and who's outside. So what is the true family? And so that's where we're going to continue on this morning in the story of the Savior. The last three weeks, we've looked at Jesus as the good news, Jesus as the caller, and Jesus last week as the forgiver. This week, we're going to look at Jesus, the brother. The brother. The one who is part of our family and how this shapes our church vision. How does the fact that Jesus is our brother affect the vision of a church like this? We want to be a church of welcoming all types of people to be a disciple of Jesus, just like Jesus did. We want to be a church of shocking countercultural unity. We want to be a church that pursues the will of God together. We want to be a church that is a true family. And it's been a real joy for me. I've been in this church barely a month, and it's amazing how quickly it begins to feel like your family. So thank you. Thank you for welcoming me into this family. And uh, for, so in some ways, I'm preaching to the choir, to you all, because you all do this so well. But it's a hard thing to continue. How do we continue to be a family together? And what does that really look like to be a true family? So here's a question I want to open up with. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the word brother? Brother, what's the first thing you think of? My guess is you're probably what, what you think of is probably dependent on whether you have brothers or not or whether you had brothers i have two brothers i have an older brother and a younger brother and i'm the middle brother and i'm going to see them later today actually as part of our family trip that i mentioned earlier um, but i had two brothers growing up and i was, I was blessed we had, i had two great brothers and it's because i know they're listening to this i'm going to kind of tell them i they're great brothers right andrew and jt you're great brothers hear hear me say it but what are, what are good brothers? Good brothers are protectors. They're those who advocate for you. They look out for you. They encourage you. They show the way for you. They go before you. So my older brother, for instance, I learned by what he did. Whether it was good or bad, he paved the way. And so I was able to learn from his mistakes and emulate the good things that he did. They can do all these things because they know you. They grew up in the house with you. They know what makes you, you. But what are bad brothers like? They take that insider knowledge of you and use it against you, right? They take something that they know about you and they twist it and poke you with it and make you feel bad. They manipulate, they discourage, they throw you under the bus, they keep secrets. They don't teach you the lessons they learn, but they make you figure it out on your own. And they, they're not encouragement. So what kind of brother is Jesus? Jesus had actual brothers. We learned that James was one of his brothers, the, the gospel writer, or not the gospel writer, the, the letter writer in James was probably one of his brothers. 
And he had other brothers that are mentioned. But I'm not so much thinking about those literal brothers. I'm thinking about what kind of brother is Jesus to us? And so the first point that I want to talk about, that's really not even in the text, but just a foundational thing of who Jesus is as a brother, is Jesus as the brother is for us because he is like us. Jesus is for us because he is like us. And it's not even in the text here, but I want to make sure we all understand who Jesus is as a person. There was a creed that came out in the 400s, around 451, out of Chalcedon. It's called the the Chalcedonian Creed. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for you or go into the deep theology of it, but the the long and short of it is, this creed was, was written by the early church to communicate two things about Jesus. Jesus is 100% fully human, and he's 100% fully God. He's 100% both at the same time. Not 50% man, 50% God, or 100% God some of the time, and then 100% man some of the time. No, all the time, from his eternity, 100% human, 100% God. It's kind of a complicated thing. The math doesn't add up, but that's who Jesus is. And that's what this creed teaches us. Why is this important? Jesus is fully God, which enables him to be for us, for us and our salvation. Because Jesus is God, it enables him to be profoundly for us, meaning that he came into this world to save. Only God can do that. He came into the world to save us. He is begotten of God, not made. We are all children of God, and Jesus is fully God himself. He is for us. He is our advocate. He is our champion. He is our hero. He is God, which means he is for us. But then he also is is fully human. He's 100% human. He's just like you and me. He experiences everything that we experience. He is tempted. He's a human being. He has to eat. Everything that makes us human makes Jesus human as well. He he didn't skip any of the hard parts of being human. In fact, he he didn't skip them. He ran into them. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews helps us out. Let me read two verses or two sections here of Hebrews. The first is Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. It says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us so that he could save us, so he can make atonement for our sins. But secondly, so he's exactly like us. He's, he's like us in every respect. But then Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, this is a great passage. Talking about Jesus, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who is in every respect has been tempted like we are, yet is without sin. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's just like us. He can relate with us in anything, in loneliness, in depression, in sadness, in anger, in pain and suffering, temptation. But Jesus never sinned. And that's the kind of brother that we need. Anything we go through, Jesus went through as a boy and as a man himself. And this is the only religion in the world that believes that God could become a human and do this and save us. And that's what makes Christianity unique in the history of world religions. It's a bit scandalous, but it's the only way 
that God could save humanity. So that's the first big point I wanted to make sure we're just clear on. Now we're going to dive into the text here in Mark 3 and look at just a couple other things about what makes Jesus as a brother unique to each of us. Because as we sit here, we are his brothers and sisters, and Jesus is our brother. So beginning in verse 7, if you have a Bible, uh, again, always I encourage you to keep one open as we go through the text here. We're going to, again, go quickly through things, but also um, zero in on some points here. So the first thing I want us to look here uh, in addition is starting in verse 7, Jesus as our brother draws a great crowd, but he calls just a few. Jesus, as our brother, draws a great crowd to himself. But as the passage goes on, you'll notice he zeroes in and calls just a few. What does this mean? So the first thing you see in chapter 3, again looking at verse 7, really, is it says a great crowd follows Jesus. And it's repeated here a couple of times. Verse 7, a great multitude or a great crowd followed him. Verse 8, a great crowd heard all that he was doing. Verse 9 There were so many people around that Jesus said, hey, disciples, can you have a boat ready just in case they get so swarming around me that I need to get on the boat and kind of just go off into the water? He was kind of afraid that they were going to crush him, it says. That's how many people had accumulated around Jesus. Why were so many people around Jesus? Think back to the last few weeks, the things that we've heard about, what Jesus has been doing in the area. What's he been doing? He's been healing people. He's been raising a paralyzed man and telling him to stand up. He's been casting demons out of people. He's been healing physical ailments. And remember last week, we learned that, yes, Jesus cares about our physical ailments, but it's a bit of a trap for Jesus, right? Because he knows that people will always respond and follow him if he just takes care of their physical ailments. So for you and me, if we're sick or if we're hurt or if we're in pain, Jesus, please heal me of this, and I'll I'll promise I'll do anything you want. Jesus knows that this is a little bit of a lure and enticement to the soul. So Jesus can draw a great crowd by healing people, and he sees that. And that's why he kind of tells people after he heals people, hey, don't don't go tell people. You know, I have a plan here that I need to accomplish, and I'm after human hearts and after human souls I want to deal with the problem of sin. And if I get such a great swarm of people that they're going to crush me or or run me out of town, I can't accomplish what I'm really here for. So Jesus has a huge crowd around him, but he is more concerned about the hearts of humanity. And so as we go on in the passage, looking like at verse 13 now, where we go into this long passage about Jesus' 12 disciples that he calls, Jesus goes from the great crowd who is following him And he begins to narrow it down to a smaller group of people. And so it says he went up on a mountain, verse 13. And the ESV says he called to him those whom he desired. He brought those close to him whom he desired. It's an interesting way of thinking about it here. Jesus calls followers. He calls people to a costly way of living. Remember we talked about two weeks ago. And not everybody is up to that. Some people are just after the physical healing. Some people are just after getting their withered hand healed, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, or just having their physical ailment taken away. Not everybody is up to the costly task of being a follower of Jesus, and Jesus knows that. And so we see here a little bit of the heart of Jesus. It says, he called to him those whom he desired. 
those whom he wanted to bring close to himself, whom he knew were up to the challenge of living a costly way of life, of those that would be part of his mission. So it's not the huge crowd, and it's not just the 12. It's probably a number somewhere in between of those whom he desired. And then those whom he desired, he brings 12, particularly. 12 that he would bring particularly close to him and carry with him no matter where he went in the next three years of his ministry. And here's the thing about Jesus' call. We kind of mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but I'll say it again here. When Jesus calls, he's 100% effective. He aces the test of calling people. And so when Jesus calls you, you will respond because his call is effectual. He is 100% effective. And so when Jesus calls people here, what does it say? They came to him. Verse 13, he called those to whom he desired and they came to him. 100% effectiveness. What a great thing. And he appointed 12. He brought 12 here. Why has he picked 12? If you've read your Old Testament, you'll know that there's how many tribes in Israel? Twelve. So if you're a Jewish person and you see Jesus calling twelve disciples, it's pretty clear. Jesus is trying to restore the family of God. And he's going to do a new thing. But again, if you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, I'm going to, he's going to restore Israel, right? Well, Jesus has a new family in mind. He's calling a true family. He's calling 12. And he tells them to do three things. It says, he says, he calls, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. So learn from him. What, what, what does disciple mean? Disciple means someone who's a learner. So he's telling them, you're going to learn from me. You're going to be close to me. And that he might send them out to preach. That's what the word apostle means, is a sent out one. So Jesus says, these 12 are going to come. They're going to be near to me. They're going to learn from me. And I'm going to send them out, and they're going to preach in the words that I give them. And then the third thing here, and I'm going to give you authority to cast out demons. Because they've seen Jesus do this. And that's kind of splitting the responsibility here. It kind of gives them the authority to do some of this crowd-drawing work. And it gives Jesus the opportunity to go do other things and to continue his mission of saving souls. And so that's who Jesus calls here close to himself. Some of those few that he calls down. Let's just do a quick rundown of who these 12 are. Because we're going to see them interacting throughout the Gospel of Mark. Who are these 12? So verses 16 to 19, we see all 12 listed. And it's a ragtag group of misfits. It's an amazing, eclectic group of people. And this is what every church kind of should look like, is a different, eclectic group of people are saying, I can't believe these 12 are one. That's kind of like us. I can't believe all of us are part of the same body. We're a family, even though we're very different. So just a couple of them here. You have a former fisherman who has the nickname The Rock. Simon. Peter is Peter means rock. He has the nickname The Rock. So you have this guy who's kind of like the strong, stable one. Peter, the rock, who doesn't turn out to be so rock-like. He's pretty unstable in his ministry. Secondly, you have a couple of brothers who have the nickname Sons of Thunder. Again, this sounds like professional wrestlers, doesn't it? You have the rock and you have Sons of Thunder. And these are two of Jesus' disciples. You have a tax collector who we saw last week, Matthew, who, again, was scandalous and kind of on the outside. 
You have one twin, not the other, right? It says Thomas. Uh, where is it here? Yeah, Thomas here is a twin. It doesn't say here in this passage, but we know Thomas is a twin. And so, but just one of the twins, not the other. My wife is a twin, and it's kind of sad to think that he only called one of the twins. Where's the other one? Again, kind of a strange group of people here. You have a guy that's called Simon. Not just Simon, Simon the Zealot. Zealot means that he was probably an Israeli nationalist, to use today's terminology. He was someone who was so pro-Israel that he would be kind of reckless and violent, probably to defend the cause of Israel. He's someone that would probably be a little dangerous to have around. He was probably a little bit quick to the draw. And Jesus says, no, come be part of me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you in and call you out. And then he has one who we know already and we're told in advance was going to abandon the group and betray Jesus. And then you have others as well. This is the group of the few that Jesus calls to himself. They are not the group that I would pick probably to be on my core team. This isn't exactly Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the Super Bowl champion New England Patriots here. This is kind of a weak, weird group. But that's who Jesus calls. Weak, eclectic people to be used by himself for his glory. We have this treasures in jars of clay, Jesus says, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Our power is made perfect in weakness, Paul says later. And he calls just 12 people. I think this is really important here. So he, Jesus has a huge crowd to choose from. He could have rallied around to do a big movement, but he picks just 12 to be his core. And so as you and I sit in this room, 30 or so of us, and look at a city of 42,000 people in Salem or a region around us of many, many more, and say, how could a group of 30 or 40 like us ever possibly make an impact for the gospel? Jesus takes 12 people and changes the world through 12 people. And it just takes one century before it's multiplying and expanding around the world and making it a massive impact. Margaret Mead has famously said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And on a Christian perspective, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in London in the mid-century said, listen to this, church. God has always done his greatest work through a remnant. Get rid of the notion of numbers, he says. God has always done his greatest work through a remnant. In church, that's what we are in Salem, for instance. And that's what the church in the North Shore in America is. We are a faithful remnant who God can use to do amazing things. Amazing things. Just let that, if you don't hear anything else today, let that part sink in. God can use a remnant to change cities and change worlds for his glory. Verses 20 and 21, the big crowd comes back. And they come around him again. It's like the paparazzi was just following Jesus everywhere. And then his family heard about it. And they went out to grab him because they said, he's out of his mind. <laughs> his family. Remember, insider, outsider here. What's Jesus doing? He's building a new family. Jesus' nuclear family comes to him and says, Jesus, what are you doing? You're kind of crazy. Get it together, Jesus. This has gone too far. We just want to eat our meal in peace. And they, they say he's out of his mind. They try to grab him. 
Next thing here we learn about Jesus as the brother. So Jesus draws a big crowd, but he calls just a few. The next thing here we see in these, this is kind of a strange passage in verses 22 to 30. It's about uh, the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus by saying, he's really a demon, so you're a demon who's casting out demons. And Jesus kind of goes on to explain what he's doing. But the point here is that Jesus, as our brother, is ending one family and he's beginning another and that's really what he's trying to do here in verses 22 to 30. And so we won't, we won't look at this deeply, but we'll just talk about a few things here. What I want you to see here is you have Satan's family, Satan's kingdom here that's been established. That's what Belzebul, when they're talking about Jesus being, Jesus, you're like Belzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, verse 22. You have the kingdom of Satan here that's happening. And then you have the kingdom of God. The family of God. These two opposing families that are kind of at odds with each other that you're beginning to see as a theme here. And so Jesus is bringing an end to Satan's family. Verses 23 and on, he says, why would, he's like, if I was a demon, why would I be casting out Satan? That makes no sense, Pharisees. He's like, why would I, why would I do that? Then, then Satan would be casting out Satan and the whole house would fall apart. The deck of cards just comes falling down. What's the point of that? Jesus says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And he says in, in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. So what Jesus does is he identifies in verse 27. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So again, think about Jesus' family who had just come up to him, and they were trying to seize him. They were trying to grab Jesus and kind of get him under control. Get it together, Jesus, right? And Jesus is now saying, why don't you stop trying to grab me and get me together and see that I'm going to grab Satan. I'm trying to go plunder him. I'm going to grab the strong man and throw him out of the house and plunder his house to destroy that evil family, that satanic family, so that I can build a true family. That's why I'm casting out demons. That's why I'm preaching good news. Jesus says, let me go. Release me. Stop trying to grab me. And let's go grab Satan. Because that's who I'm after. I'm the strong man who's trying to grab this strong man and plunder his house. And I'm going to do it in ways that are unexpected. So Jesus is putting an end to the domain of Satan. And in verses 28 to 30 you see that Jesus is beginning a new family, God's new family. He is the strong brother who's going out in the name of his family and saying, I'm the strong, fit one who's going before you, leading the way. I'm going to build a new family here. He says, truly I say to you, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Remember last week, Jesus is the forgiver. He forgives sins. He forgives anything that is sinful in us if we come to him and lay our life on his life. But he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit. Jesus is saying this new family is being built on this Holy Spirit, on the clean spirit. And I'm weeding out the unclean and I'm building my family on the clean spirit, the Holy Spirit, the undefiled spirit, 
the one who alone can bring unity amidst division. God is bringing this new family into existence. And if you, if you can't see the Holy Spirit, then you can't be part of this family. If you're confusing the Holy Spirit with the unclean spirit, it's blasphemy. So remember last week, they accused Jesus of blasphemy. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy. And Jesus is like, you're right, it's a great question. Problem is, I'm God. So it's not blasphemy. It's just truth. So I can forgive sins because I am God. I'm 100% man and 100% God. And Jesus is saying here, the Holy Spirit is what is the confirmation of this. So finally, verse 31 to 35, what was read earlier by Brian, gives us our implications as a church. It frames our vision as a church for what a new family is like. So the last point here is Jesus, the brother, is not just establishing a new family. He is the head of the new family. He is the one who is at the front. There's a story, uh, a fable called The Travelers and the Purse. Let me read this story to you. It's a short one. It says, two men were traveling in company along the road when one of them picked up a well-filled purse, a heavy purse. It just was sitting there all by itself. He picked it up and he said, wow, how lucky I am. I found a purse and judging by, by its weight, it's probably full of gold. And his companion looked at him and says, do not say I found a purse. Rather say we found a purse and how lucky we are. Travelers ought to share all the fortunes or misfortunes of the road. I was here with you. This is our fortune. And the guy said, no, 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 no. I found it and I'm going to keep it. I, I, I. And just then, behind them, they heard a bunch of people saying, stop, thief, stop, thief. He's got the bag. And they were running after him with clubs. And the guy began to panic and he dropped the purse and he says, we are lost We are lost if they find us and they find the purse on us. And the guy looks back and what does he say? No, 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 no. You don't say we before. Now it's just I. You're lost if they find you with the purse. Earlier we sang the song, Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Really, that, we actually changed the, the pronouns to that song this morning. The, the, the song is usually sung, Lord, I need you every hour I need you, which is true. But when we're together and as we sing a song, it's good to sing it in the collective, in the we, because that's what the church is all about. We share the fortunes together. We share the misfortunes together. And this story shows us that. And so as we look at this new family that Jesus is building here in verses 31 to 35. As his brothers come back and his mother comes back and they send out to him. Again, picture when you're a child and your mom or your dad come looking for you and they say, come on in, it's time to come in. You've been playing outside long enough. No, mom, I don't want to come back inside. It can't be dinner time yet. That's kind of the image we're getting here of what's happening. And yet Jesus here totally puts his nuclear family on the outside. And he says, who are my real brothers and mother? It says, there are those whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. He's sitting around a table with those whom he has called to himself. 
So what is this new family like? Just a couple of quick things here as we finish. This new family has supernatural leadership. Jesus is the head of the new family. The brother is the head of the true family. Colossians says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Number two, what is this new family like? Supernatural adoption. All of us who have been called to Christ have been adopted into this new family. None of us were the true original son or daughter. We've all been brought from the outside. We all were in a, an orphan home, far away. Our parents had left us. We were broken. We were in need. And Jesus brings us in supernaturally by his adopting heart. We've been adopted into his family, saved by grace through faith, being invited into his family, so that, as Romans 8 says, we no longer have a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Number three, we have supernatural unity in this new family. No longer is there Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but there is one body supernaturally unified by his spirit. He took two and he made them one. And we've been brought together by his peace. Number four, supernatural inclusion. Which means that this family is always a family that is including new adoptions into our family. And so as a church, as we bind ourselves close together and we love each other well as a well-knit family of brothers and sisters under our chief brother Jesus... When a brother or sister comes off the street and is looking for grace and love, we bring them in, right? As another adopted brother and sister, as one who's been called by Christ. We are insiders to the kingdom, but we're only insiders because we've been adopted ourselves. We include one another. And lastly, supernatural friendship. Friendship. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves or servants. Now I call you friends. John 15. The earliest church in Acts 2 showed us this. It said they had everything in common. They shared their possessions. They worshipped. They broke bread together. They listened to the apostles' teaching. They were generous. And they became friends together. So who can come in? Whoever does the will of God. We could do a whole sermon series on what the will of God is. I had a couple of conversations this week with some people in their 20s who were asking that question. What is God's will for my life? What am I called to? I don't really know what God's will is for me. And ultimately, the scriptures actually kind of make it pretty simple. Let me read just a couple of scriptures. Romans 12, don't be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern his will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 4, no longer live for human passions, but live for the will of God. 1 John 2, whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what the will of God is to be growing in holiness, to be close to Jesus, to abide in him, to put away sinful, fleshly passions. That's the will of God. 
If you do those things, if you put away your selfishness and your passions, and you come to Jesus and you put your life on him, welcome to the family. You're part of the true family of God. So church, the big idea today is just that the church is the true family. We can debate about whether the nuclear family has gone wrong or whether how do we live out our lives in family or extended family or what does this look like in our modern day, but the fact comes down to this. The family that Jesus cares about is the church. The church is the one true family. The family where we are meant to belong. And so for those of you here, I'm preaching to the choir. For anybody that's watching this, welcome to the family. Come to Christ and come be, far, come be part of the adopted family of God, his family, his church. We want to be a church of true family, welcoming all people, countercultural, pursuing the will of God together. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, you are the adopted, the, the one who has adopted us into your family. You are the one true God who takes lost sheep and brings them close to yourself. And so, Lord, as we finish today and we sing about the church's one foundation, being Jesus, we pray that that would resonate deeply with our hearts today. So would you fill us with your joy, fill us with the love of the adoption that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.